0: The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. I want to invite you
1: now to take your copy of the scriptures with me and uh, join with me as we open up to the Bible together to Psalm 129. Uh, We have been in these collections of the Psalms for some time now and just To clarify, I have a notification on my phone that is messing everything up right now. Deacons, in case you're wondering, you're not meeting at 1130 this morning. (laughs) Sometimes all we can do is laugh about these types of things, so that's what I'm going to choose to do now. Anyway, uh, let's open together to the scriptures to Psalm 129. We have been in this collection of the Psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent during this Quarantine period that we have found ourselves in, and uh, if you've got a Bible, I hope you'll join with me there in Psalm 129. And what these Psalms of Ascents are, uh, just as a reminder, that these are a particular collection of Psalms that were gathered together and placed in the Psalter to be a special collection for those who were going to worship in the temple, which was on the hill of Zion, known as the city of Jerusalem, and they would sing these psalms both as they prepared to go, as they were on the way, once they got there, and sometimes even as they were departing from the place in which they have gone to worship. But this particular psalm takes place most likely in the temple itself as the people gather to worship. But before we get into the details of Psalm 129, in the Psalms of Ascent, uh, there are all kinds of different types of psalms. Uh, Maybe you're aware of the fact that there are different kinds of psalms. There are psalms in which uh, praise is the primary theme. There are some psalms in which joy or thanksgiving is the primary theme. And uh, usually those come out very clearly. But there are other types of psalms as well, some that are maybe less familiar. There are psalms that we call lament psalms in which The song is intended to communicate a sense of sorrow or grief, sadness or pain. And there are other types of psalms, like the one that we're coming to this morning. And I just want to give you a fair warning that this might catch us a little bit off guard because Psalm 129 can be categorized as what we call an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm. So, uh, we'll see what that means in just a little bit, but first, let's pray and ask God's blessing on His Word, and then hear it together. Lord God, we bow in Your presence, thankful that You have given to us the Scriptures, given to us the Bible, that we might have the Word of life, the Word of truth to guide us in all things. Lord, we are people this morning that need to be guided, that need to be led in the direction of truth. And so I pray, Lord, that you would set aside the concerns of our minds, our distractions, that we might give attention to your word, both the reading, the hearing, the preaching of it this morning. And Lord, as we do so, we pray that you would bless us, strengthen our faith, and help us to trust in you. For We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. And now hear the word of God from Psalm 129. They have afflicted me from my youth. This is the word of God. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of of the Lord. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. So may he write its eternal truth upon our hearts this morning. Uh, As we prepare to look here at Psalm 129, uh, I want to share a bit of history with you. Uh, When the Church of Scotland was wanting to choose a symbol for their national church, they chose the symbol of the burning bush. And when we think about the symbolism of a burning bush, we think about that that picture in the book of Exodus where God appeared to Moses in a bush that was burning. And the reason why the church chose the symbol of the burning bush was not just because that was the symbol of where God met with Moses, but because of the way the Bible describes the bush itself where God met with Moses. And the way the Bible describes that bush was that it was burning but it wasn't burnt up. That it was burning, but the Bible says it wasn't consumed. And what the Church of Scotland intended to communicate by using that symbolism was that they were a church that endured perpetual suffering The first 130 years of Presbyterian history were marked by a struggle for religious freedom, and particularly during one period, from 1660 to 1689, it was known as the Killing Times, when over 18,000 Presbyterians died for their freedom of worship. And that's why they chose the symbol of the burning bush to symbolize a perpetual suffering that didn't consume them. A perpetual burning under trial, but not a burning out or exhaustion of the people. And that's why they chose that symbol and the Latin phrase, nec tamen consumbato, which means burning, but not consumed. And that symbolism and that Line burning but not consumed, actually captures a sense of what Psalm 129 is speaking about. Except it's not talking only about Presbyterians, and it's not talking about only the age of the New Testament, but rather the people of God generally. But here in Psalm 129, in the days of the Old Testament, the days of the people of God known as Israel. But the truth that we're going to see here is one that applies to all the people of God in every age. But in this particular psalm of ascent, the worshipers were gathering together to remember their history, to remember who they are and from where they have come. And the history of Israel up to this point was a history of suffering and struggle. And they gathered together to remember and recall to mind God's blessing and protection and perseverance through their days of trials. Uh, And so what I want us to see in Psalm 129 is... Uh, Two things. You'll notice that the psalm is divided up actually quite well. There's a break at the end of verse 4. I want us to see two things, and you'll see how they're divided up. There's a natural division here. All the verbs in verses 1 to 4 are past tense verbs. They're describing things that have taken place in the past. And in verses 1 to 4, I want us to see God's blessing in the past. But then there's a division And verse 5 through 8 begins a time of speaking about the future. All the verbs here are are future tense. They're yet to happen. And so there's this division between God's blessing in the past in verses 1 to 4. And then in verses 5 to 8, we're going to see God's curse that is still yet to come. So first of all... This psalm leads us to remember God's blessing in the past. So in verses 1 to 4, we see that. Look again at verses 1 and 2 with me. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed Against me, You can see how even in the text, uh, this psalm would be used in a liturgical worship gathering setting where a statement is issued and the congregation is called to respond back with the same statement. That's what happens when you see, let Israel now say. And if you flip back to Psalm 124, the same thing happened there. In Psalm 124, the statement was, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, which means repeat it back. Say it again. Affirm it together, people of God. In Psalm 124, verse 2, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. and It's remembering the protection of God. But here in Psalm 129, there is a call for the people of God to remember affliction and remember suffering. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let the people of God say it again. Verse 2, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And this is using the language of me and my, which sounds individual, but it's actually corporate language because the me and the my is the people of Israel. This is describing the affliction that has come on the people of Israel, the people of God in the days of the Old Testament. These are the words in the mouth of the people of God and their experiences and experience of Affliction and suffering. Israel was born in suffering. When it speaks of affliction from my youth, that's likely a reference to the days of slavery in Egypt when Israel was a brand new nation. They had been subject to slavery in Egypt as the people of God came out of Israel and down into Egypt seeking refuge from a famine in the days of Joseph. And then the people of God are found there for many, many years. But from my youth I have been afflicted is what that is speaking of. And you see this graphic imagery. In verse 3 it speaks of the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. This is graphic slave imagery. My slave masters are like a farmer that is driving into my flesh as they drive into their fields and break up the soil. They break up my flesh. This, this calls to mind horrible pictures, doesn't it? The Whipping and scourging of slaves to do their work in conditions of turmoil and difficulty and affliction. And this is the memory of the history of Israel now. And the psalmist is asking the people of God to bring that back to their minds and remember those days, remember those days of affliction and difficulty, how hard it was for the people of God in the days of the Old Testament. And we could say that affliction has come upon Israel from the youth of Israel, but also since the youth of Israel, because all of the history of Israel is really a history of affliction, not just from the nation like Egypt, but other nations as well the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Philistines, all these other nations, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Romans. Israel is a perpetual sufferer at the hands of other nations. They are small, they are weak, and they are perpetually under trial. That was true of the people of God in the Old Testament. And whether or not you like to admit it, It's true of the people of God in the days of the New Testament as well. As we think about the Apostle Peter and what he wrote to the church to endure their suffering, John Calvin reminds us that the way of life in the Christian life is that suffering is the way to victory. And death is the way to life. We have this upside down way of life in the Christian faith. And there are earthly enemies and earthly struggles. But the point is not the prevalence of the suffering. But as you see in verse 2, the fact that they have not prevailed. In verse 2, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Israel's enemies did not prevail over Israel, not because Israel was strong and not because Israel was mighty and not because Israel had everything within themselves to defend themselves, but rather their perseverance and their weakness was a testimony to God's strength and God's protection and God's sovereign deliverance over a weak people so that at the end of the day, God would be glorified. The people of God could say, as great as our trouble is, and it is great, greater still is our God who defends and protects us. And this is a truth for the people of God in every age, that for as great as our trouble is, our God is greater. Now that is just one point that the psalm makes, but I think some of us today need to have that point sealed to our hearts and believe it again. That if you find yourself in trouble, you can cry out to your God who is greater than all of your troubles. That's good news. But what this this psalm is doing is it is expressing that confidence. And the first really main point of this first section is in verse 4. That for as many as the trials and as many as the sufferings, verse 4, the Lord is righteous and He has cut the cords of the wicked." That's that's deliverance language, isn't it? That's language that, that harkens back to the Exodus from Egypt, that the Lord has cut the cords that held his people in bondage and delivered them from slavery. And the psalmist is praising the Lord God who delivers by saying, the Lord is righteous. That's the primary thing that the psalmist is focused on as they praise the Lord, is his righteousness. The Lord is righteous. What does that mean? What does it mean to say, in verse 4, the Lord is righteous? Uh, It means that the Lord conforms to a standard. That's what the word righteous means. To conform to a standard. And what standard does the Lord himself conform to? If the Lord is righteous, that means the Lord conforms to a standard, and he conforms to the standard of his word. He conforms to the standard of his promises, which is another way of saying the Lord is righteous. The Lord is a covenant keeper. He keeps his promises is what the psalmist is saying in verse 4. To say that the Lord is righteous is to say that the Lord keeps his covenant. And that's the main thing about the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and our God as well. That's what distinguishes God from all of these other gods the gods of Egypt and the God of Moab and the God of the Philistines, the God of Canaan. They're all incompetent idols. They don't exist. They're false. But not only is our God real, He is a God who keeps His covenant. He is a God that is dependable, He is a God that is righteous. He is a God that is utterly trustworthy. When God gives his word, when he issues a promise, it's a sure promise. It's a fixed reality when God speaks. When God makes his covenant, he keeps his covenant. And for all of the suffering that the people of God have endured, they had underneath them to hold them up this sure promise of God's covenant of grace so that they could say the Lord is righteous. He's dependable. Again and again, He's delivered us. And I believe that that should be our testimony as well as the church of God that the Lord has delivered us. He's delivered me out of tyranny. He's delivered me out of affliction. He's delivered me out of sorrows. He's delivered me out of the bondage of sin. Gratitude to God for the deliverance that He brings marks the history of Israel and it should mark our lives as well. That God makes and keeps His promises in every circumstance, in every situation, under every trial. No matter the tyranny, God's covenant endures. And that's the song that the people of God are singing here. For as much as my affliction, greater still God's faithfulness. God is righteous, God is dependable, and He is trustworthy. He brings about what He has promised to do. That's the first section in verses 1 to 4. Remembering the blessings of God. But then there's a transition. This is where we have to settle in a little bit and take a deep breath looking at the Scriptures. Because in verse 8, in verses 5 through 8, the same God who blesses is the God who curses. Because what does it mean to say that God is a covenant-keeping God? It means to say that as the Lord is righteous... He does what He says He will do. He will stick to His standard and keep His promises. Which means, on the one hand, God saves His people. And on the other hand, destroys His enemies. There is salvation on the one hand and destruction on the other. The God who enters into His covenant, there are blessings, but... Just as there are blessings, there are curses. It means that where there is salvation on the one hand, again, there is the defeat of the enemies on the other. That where there is forgiveness on the one hand, there is the satisfaction of justice on the other. You see, when God forgives sin, He doesn't take away justice. He pardons the guilty. But for those who have not sought pardon, there is still justice. This is a very important truth about God that I think many of us are oftentimes uncomfortable with. We like the blessing. We like the forgiveness. But we don't want to think about the equal opposite. And here we have, in verses 5 through 8, a cry for justice. A cry for judgment and even curse. But please be very clear about this. Psalm 129 is not talking about personal vengeance. My vengeance toward another person. This is not a vindictive cry of a particular person that's been offended. Vengeance is always, every time in the scripture cast it as something that is sinful if we possess it in our heart we are not to seek our own vengeance we are not to answer for our own grudges, we are not to pursue justice in our own hands, it's never right, it's always a violation of biblical ethic, the Bible is very very clear about this, this is not personal vengeance in Psalm 129 so be clear about the fact that Psalm 129 is not contradicting the words of Jesus, Who tells us to love our enemies and bless those who curse us and turn the other cheek? Those are biblical ethics. And at the same time, the psalmist is here speaking collectively. Collectively, as the people of God, that's very important. The people of God are expressing their zeal for the name of God because God has been offended, because God has been sinned against because the honor and integrity of God have been called into question, the people of God respond with these imprecatory words, not on their own behalf, but on behalf of the honor and integrity of God. God's glory is at stake. The people of God are concerned about God's name and His honor. That's the important thing to notice here. It's not individual. It's corporate on behalf of the integrity of God. Now, You may not realize this, but we pray something of imprecatory prayers every Sunday. We just don't think of them like that, right? When we pray in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come. What do we understand that to mean? We understand, of course, that is, calling forth the spreading of God's kingdom into the world and the advancement of light over against the darkness. But even as light advances, darkness still exists. And if light is coming, it's going to involve the casting out of darkness. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, it means both the advancement of the light and the destruction of the darkness. When we pray, as the close of the New Testament does, come quickly, Lord Jesus. What do we think is going to happen when Christ comes? Yes, He's going to come to deliver us. Yes, He's going to come to vindicate His sacrifice and bring us to Himself. But it also means that simultaneously, all of God's enemies will be defeated. And we just don't tend to think about God having enemies, do we? But it is simply a way that the Bible speaks of the reality of this fallen world. And what will happen... What is is the psalmist uh, particularly praying for in these imprecatory prayers? Three things. You'll see him in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. First of all, in verse 5, he is praying that no honor would be given to the enemies of God. Verse 5, may all who hate Zion be put to shame. And turned backward. In other words, may their advances against the kingdom of God be turned back and defeated. May they know the shame of defeat rather than victory against the people of God. May they have no honor. Secondly, in verses 6 and 7, he is praying that they would have no success. Verse 6 let them be like grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. And what this is a picture of is the fact that that many of the roofs in ancient Israel had uh, dirt roofs, and sometimes grass would grow up, but the dirt was too shallow for roots to be set, and so the grass would spring up, but then it would wither and die. It was too shallow, and sometimes sometimes the grain would dry out. They would plant grain up there, and it would dry out, and they would be able to, to take it as a crop. But here, the prayer is that it would wither before it grows up so that it can't even be gathered up. It can't be gathered up in the hands or it can't be gathered up nor the binder of sheaves his arms. You can't fill his arms with the grain. He's praying for no success for the enemies of God. And then finally, in verse 8, he is praying for no blessing to rest upon the enemies of God. Verse 8, Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. That was a common greeting in the days of harvest in ancient Israel. Uh, Maybe you remember in the book of Ruth in chapter 2, Boaz comes to his field and the workers greet him saying, The Lord bless you. And Boaz says, The Lord be with you. There's this greeting that takes place. that's, That's a common blessing for all of Israel. But here it's pictured saying, That will not be said. There will be no blessing. God will withhold His common grace to his enemies. Now, again, these are imprecatory prayers. They are praying a curse. And and why? Why? If Zion was just another city, then these words wouldn't make any sense. Why, why should imprecatory prayers be prayed against Israel's enemies? Because the enemies of Zion set themselves not against an earthly city, and the enemies of Zion are not just enemies of some earthly city, but rather the enemies of the city of God, and so therefore God himself. Verse 5 says, all those who hate Zion, which is like saying all those who hate God. There are those who set themselves against the people of God and therefore set themselves against God himself. You might not have been expecting this, in these Psalms of Ascent and yet the worshipers are gathering together to say God is faithful in our affliction. But for all those who fail to seek shelter under the grace of God's covenant, there will be affliction for them. God's blessing in verses one to four and then God's curse in verses five to eight. So what in the world do we do with this? And is it even right that something like this would be in the scriptures? Well, of course it is. And, and to those of us who are especially perhaps choking on these words right now, just a general reminder that when we come up against something that doesn't sit right with us in the Bible, we shouldn't conclude that something is wrong with the Bible, but rather that something is wrong with us. That we've misunderstood something so simple as the fact that God is king. And he has the right to rule as he pleases. And in his grace, he has extended mercy. But there is also a judgment. And what this points to, what the sufferings of Israel as a people are pointing to ultimately, is that there would be one who would come from Israel would suffer just like Israel did, except he would suffer on his own. The prophet Isaiah speaks about a, a suffering servant who would come from Israel and be a Messiah for a suffering people, a suffering servant for a suffering people. And Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face, from disgrace and spitting. It's describing in detail the kind of suffering that we saw in verse 3. Except it's not a corporate suffering, it's an individual suffering that the Messiah undergoes. And also in Isaiah 53 verse 5 says that He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by His wounds we are healed this is pointing us to this reality of a savior for israel a savior for the people of god and that savior brings us into the covenant people of god by his grace not our power not our strength not our might but by his mercy and grace suffers on our behalf and then calls us to follow him in his ways his ways of suffering and perseverance. I find it remarkable that there are people today who are surprised that the Church of God would have to endure hardship, that the Church of God would have to endure discrimination of some sorts. If you are surprised that to be a Christian is to walk in days of struggle You have not known your own family history. But there is encouragement in this. Jesus suffers on our behalf and then calls us to walk in his ways of suffering. And he gives us the apostles as examples as they rejoice to do so. So I'll just close with this from 2 Corinthians 4 verses 7 through 11. The apostle Paul writes this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies for we Live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so what that means, simply, is that the church of God can also pray and sing Psalm 129 and remember affliction, but remember God's faithfulness and remember that to be a part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus is to be a part of a kingdom that ultimately triumphs. And to remember with humility, that the only reason that you and I are not enemies of God is because he has shown us his free grace in Jesus Christ and we have clung to it so that we might not be those who have God's justice poured out on our heads, but rather mercy. Endless mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. And so people of God, we are oppressed and we are forsaken. We are never forsaken. We are oppressed, we are afflicted, but never forsaken. And our lives stand as a testimony to God's faithfulness, to His covenant grace. That's what Psalm 129 is saying. And so I want to invite you now to join with us as we sing the psalm. We're going to sing Psalm 129 to the tune of New Britain, which is Amazing Grace, which should be easy to follow along as we affirm uh, this truth together. Let us sing Psalm 129. is truth, and Lord, we humble ourselves beneath it this morning to trust you for the things that you speak, and O oh Lord God, we pray that we would remember with humility that we are those who are not saved because of ourselves, but saved by your grace, so Lord, we sing with humility that you will come with victory, and Lord, bring judgment, but we pray, Lord, tarry the day so that more might find mercy in the name of Jesus, so that more might know the grace of the forgiveness of their sins, so that more might be gathered into your kingdom, so that there will be many on the day of your return that will sing of the glories of your grace. And, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.